Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, Humanizing Data, we explore the intersection between real estate and analytics. Today's guest is Craig Leibowitz, Executive Director of Innovation and Insights at Avison Young, a global real estate advisory firm. Craig's team designs custom data analytics products that enable occupiers and investors to solve their complex real estate strategies and deliver real-time market perspectives to public and private audiences using digital heavy formats to produce actionable market intelligence in a rapidly changing world. Craig, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So Craig, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I oversee what we call insight, which is what most of our competitors would call research and our uh, insight advisory platform across the United States. So my role, kind of as you mentioned, Jamie, I partner with occupiers and investors to use data analytics to solve their complex real estate strategies, whether they're occupiers, investors, or both. So how did you get into this business? I fell into it, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I kind of took a bet on myself. I, I, like Jamie, worked on Wall Street, quote unquote. I interned on Wall Street, worked on Wall Street, uh, worked at Citigroup for a couple of years during the global financial crisis, uh, doing accounting work, uh, transitioned to a career as being an analyst at JLL, um, the second largest commercial real estate services firm. A few months into that role, they pointed to me and said, you know, numbers and words. So by virtue <laughs> of that, uh, I fell into research and kind of progressed to become the head of New York research over my nine year career there. And uh, was lucky enough to join this firm. And the end goal here is really to change the paradigm of what realty services firms can provide to clients. So what is data and analytics in real estate? Just give us a perspective of what that entails, what it means, and what it can do for businesses. This industry is very insulated and is very stated or, or old school in the way it interprets markets. So what it will do is it'll interpret markets in terms of vacancies, rents, capitalization rates, and so on, but it's not a very humanized approach. At the end of the day, what's more meaningful is real-time predictive data analytics at the intersection of those core real estate fundamentals and characteristics, but just as importantly, arguably more so, the real estate adjacencies, demographic, economic, and other meaningful trends that really do inform the decision-making processes of practitioners at the end of the day. Well, there's a term called big data, which has been going around forever now, um, as all as so much data is being accumulated in terms of people's preferences, what they do, everything from where they shop to what they watch to who they call. Um, where do you get all that data? Is that big data where you're pulling your resources from? Or, or is there a different place for real estate data? Where's all, where are you getting all that? That's a great question. So there's good news and bad news there. The good news is data is seemingly everywhere. Um, there are statistics out there that 
something like 90, 90% of the data that's used today is only a handful of years old, believe it or not. Now, the opportunity here is to collect all that data into a centralized place, interpret it in a way that's meaningful and use it to inform strategy. And that's kind of where we come in, where we're not the master of all worlds, but we do, we are the intersection of all those different adjacencies. And there are a number of trusted third-party providers. And I want to emphasize trusted there. In addition to our own crowdsourcing mechanism to collect real estate intelligence through which we could deliver a solution that's most meaningful to our client specifically a, a solution that's customized in service of their goals. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that you've, you've put out signals uh, and, and data sources uh, through technology companies? Is that through uh, facilities type companies like your Johnson controls and the elevator systems? You know, or is it uh, qualitative data where you're asking questions for uh, among tenants, like where are you getting all the data and what types of sources are we talking about? Sure, so <clears throat> the easier, quote unquote, easier sources of data are simply our boots on the ground. And our boots on the ground are our transaction managers. And that's where we get a lot of you know, market intelligence as it relates to who's out there in the market and, and kind of transactional deal activity and statistics. And that's the way I've operated for a number of years. The opportunity here is ultimately collecting other data sources through which we can start to interpret markets, meaning what are demographic trends? How, is it, how does it inform the decision-making process of a retailer versus an office occupier? It's probably the same source, but a very different data set and interpretation of that data as it relates to ultimately what's most meaningful to them. And uh, I have a really brilliant team that sources that data, really starting with a problem. The problem could be something that we identify, or it could be a problem that one of our clients identifies. For example, I'm working on a, on a client engagement in a different country. And in that country, there aren't that many sources of data. So we collected the sources of truth and now our role is to interpret it and ensure that we're delivering something meaningful to a client. You know, I've been, uh, I've, as a marketer, I spent, you know, a good amount of years uh, with data and, and in the marketing, in, uh, uh, consumer marketing industry, uh, data has been used and leveraged for, for decades in some cases. And it's very interesting to say, and you, you know, you had mentioned um, a few years old in terms of the data that you guys are using. It's very interesting to see real estate now adopting some of the principles that direct-to-consumer industries um, have, have been using for many years. In a lot of ways, your end user, the resident, the, the, the tenant, uh, they are your customers in a lot of ways. So being a customer-centric business allows for you to do really interesting things, but also leveraging data in unique ways. So I'm, I love to see this evolution. Yeah, absolutely. And this is an industry that has not meaningfully changed in 30 years. And now seemingly everyone's kind of waking up to the notion of, hey, what, we're, what we've been doing doesn't really work anymore. Meaning <clears throat> using a cookie cutter approach towards solving a real estate decision isn't really all that meaningful at the end of the day, especially if you're only solving for one piece of what is increasingly a very large and complicated puzzle. 
that was an arms race. So when you talk when you talk about that, are you referring to something like a developer deciding where to put a new building? And as opposed to, well, what area is now hot or where are the new artists going or those old demographic trends, but also now looking maybe at data in terms of income and what kind of building can be put up there and what they, what kind of profit can be had. And uh, is there is it data regarding how you work with the governments? I mean, give us a, a real life example of how that data is being used now that it wasn't before. Yeah, absolutely. So site selection is number one on our list as it relates to the opportunity here. So. I've, I actually, later on this afternoon, I'm working on a site selection initiative for a industrial site in the Tri-State region. And what's most meaningful to an industrial occupier in this circumstance, meaning access to people. What is the access to prospective retailers that they need to ultimately service? What is our access to talent, believe it or not? It's a very tight labor market and is really competitive given the growth of e-commerce across the tri-state region. And it's not just the real estate supply, but in demand and rents, which is just honestly, it's about 7% of the total spend of industrial users. It's the other 93% relates to where that warehouse distribution center is situated through which they can ultimately fill in the blanks. And then where we come in is say, hey, this site makes sense for you. This one may not. And here's why. You know, I love the 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 notion of humanizing data. And when you, you know, sort of introduce that concept, I mean, it's the humanized data has been around for a little bit, but I think in the context of real estate is very interesting. You know, I think it aligns very much with us as a show. You know, we our whole goal is to get people to think a little bit differently about how real estate is evaluated and how people look at real estate by by saying that it's just it goes beyond the numbers to determine whether or not a place um, or a region or a location will be more successful than others. I think that there isn't, I mean, if I'm wrong, I don't think there's any data sets that would have told you that um, 30, 25 years ago, Williamsburg would be hot uh, or Chelsea for that matter, or Wynwood. And so there are other elements socioeconomic, demographics that actually indicate where where people will go or, or what have you. So tell us a little bit about what, in your opinion uh, and in your company, what humanizing data actually means. Sure. It's data will only get someone so far. And really what we do is ensure that at least it, we could quantify what can be quantified. It's real time and preferably predictive. So where are people moving to? Why are they moving there? What are the implications of that phenomenon as one example, through which we could ultimately dictate where a decision or how a decision is ultimately made. Now, <clears throat> what's pretty fascinating here is that there is no precedent for the current environment. And psychologically, that makes people uncomfortable. All uncertainty does. And really what we do is we do everything we can to remove or alleviate any element or as many elements of uncertainty as we can. It won't necessarily solve for some of the other human elements at play here, which is why you know, we leverage our transaction managers who can kind of fill in the blanks. So for example, is this a politically favorable environment? Is it an unfavorable environment? Hard to quantify that at the end of the day. So it doesn't check all the boxes, but if we, get, if we could get our clients 
and their decision makers, most or all the way there, perfect. So this is obviously a new concept, relatively new, <clears throat> and uh, you seem to be one of the leaders in that area. How hard is it to get a buy-in when you start something like this new where you're saying, okay, we got data now that can predict why and where and when and who people are going to look at it and go, okay, whatever. I mean, there must be a, a process with a few victories and, and some proofs that, that then people start to realize there may be something. Are we through that whole phase now or are you in that right now? We're definitely in that right now. Um, we face headwinds across this industry based on, you know, we're something new. And as I mentioned earlier, this is an industry that hasn't changed meaningfully in 30 years. And now all of a sudden it's an arms race, but getting people's or understanding or comprehension around exactly what this can or should preferably look like is honestly, we're treating it as an opportunity. So some of our recent successes include hedge funds, and banking institutions where they have their own data science teams in some circumstances where they're like, wow, you get it too. Isn't that interesting? We said, yes, <laughs> we're, we're kind of taking a page out of your playbook to some extent. Um, a different lens, but part of the same general issue, issue in air quotes. Now, of course, um, there are a number of different clients who just can't fully get their arms around exactly how to interpret data too. Um, this is just kind of a generational phenomenon as well. And it took me some time candidly to kind of disassociate myself away from, for example, quarterly statistics and start to, I started to interpret markets like a stock ticker. So what's happening in the daily, minutely, secondly basis, who's returning to work? Why are they returning to, to the office? Can we quantify that? Is, is pricing changing? Is, if it's changing, what's influencing that? All these things, are happening in real time. Is this Moneyball for real estate? Is that what this is? So our listeners can understand, are you basically, are you Brad Pitt in the real estate world? What's going on? <laughs> I wish I could, I wish I had the looks, but um, <laughs> uh, ultimately it's a very sim similar mindset where Avis and Young is kind of like the challenger brand, so to speak. And, and because we're private, we have the opportunity to invest in ways, perhaps where some of our publicly traded peers cannot. And to use a Wayne Gretzky quote, because we are a Canadian company, we're skating to where the puck is going. The puck is going in this direction. It's a matter of who gets there first. I think uh, I think Craig is more of like the Jonah Hill versus the Brad Pitt <laughs> scenario. But um, so so an, so a multi Oscar nominated actor. <laughs> <then>. <laughs> there you go. So, um, so you know it's it's very interesting because you know you talk about data and I know, and, and and your clients. You know what are the things that that are keeping your clients up at night? And you know you mentioned back to work. That's an issue uh, of which we can talk about an entire show. Uh, but what, you know, what are the things? Some of the things that you that you're hearing from your clients that are that are that are keeping them up at night that you're able to solve with data. Return to work is number one on that list. Barna. Um, so. It's a very office centric question, but it has extremely broad economic implications associated with it. So for example, if office workers aren't returning to the office, multifamily rentals and residential condominiums proximate to those office locations aren't reaping the benefit of that demand. Retail, um, specifically restaurants, aren't benefiting from people who are going out to dinner or drinks or what have you 
before or after working hours and so on. The, the list goes on. Uh, hospitality, of course, is one of those industries that has been acutely affected here. And um, what we've done is we've partnered with a really amazing third party named Orbital Insight to quantify return to work efforts across gateway cities and across different industry segments across those cities. So we're able to quantify if financial services companies are returning to work more quickly than creative firms like your own Alex. So is your company returning more quickly than others? If not, why? Um, and there's real groupthink involved here. So when some of the bellwether companies return, it's kind of a shot across the bow to their competitors to say, oh, why aren't we back sooner ourselves? And there are productivity implications associated with that because the notion is that if you're in the office, you're more productive. We don't, that's not entirely true, but it's also not entirely quantifiable either. I was reading an article, I think it was a couple of days ago uh, in the journal that was talking about shoe shine and shoe repair little store in Midtown, Manhattan. You, you guys are both in Manhattan right now. It's those businesses you don't think of, right? When you're thinking about the people who are suffering, but these are mom and pop little businesses and they depend on the people who are coming in and out of that sector of the, of the city for work on a daily basis and getting a lot of their errands done in the place they work. Um, it, would, it would seem um, logical to me that data, an advantage of data is that it can be readjusted in real time. So as an example of the discussion you were just talking about, people were set to come back to New York in droves and then COVID Delta hit. And people like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley were originally gonna have everybody back, then they're moving the back. When, when, when a, a disruptor like the COVID Delta issue makes its way into the resulting actions by people, how fast can you capture that and rerun the data? On a, on a daily basis with a two day lag, unbelievably. And we're going to produce a report, not to plug uh, Avis and Young too much uh, or, or my group specifically, but we're gonna release uh, a report with uh, a subject matter expert as a release to return to work efforts after Labor Day, um, which will have a lot of play. And the idea is to create an index as that's updated on a daily basis as it relates to those return to work efforts. So people could start to monitor for themselves as it evolves. And the goalpost was supposed to be Labor Day. Mind you, it was supposed to be last Easter, then it was last Labor Day, and then it was last January. Now it's this Labor Day, and increasingly it's becoming later and later. So that goalpost keeps moving, and we're delivering something that will allow our clients to monitor that in real time. Yeah, no, I can't wait to see that, actually. That would be a really interesting report. I'm sure our listeners would, would probably agree. Uh, you know, when you think about the human element to that, uh, you know, you, you talk about the nums, you talk about the economic impact of the businesses around the business. There's also the the employee, right? And I think, you know, we've we've had a people, some guests on the show that talks about, they talk about the, the employee um, the dilemma. And as an employer, what are you trying to do in order to keep people working? And one ask, one side of that coin is, you know, work from home, enjoy life. You never have to come back to the office again, come work with us. On the other side is I'm going to throw 
free food, uh, uh, free transportation. Uh, just get to the office, please. Daycare. <laughs> so I was at Lehman Brothers, we literally had a daycare center in the building so that there was no excuse if a parent couldn't come in because the child, because you had to care of the child because the daycare center had a problem. Bring it in. We've got daycare. <laughs> got yeah. rid of that excuse. <laughs> so I'd, I'd love to see a number, a statistic of some kind that said, you know, for you, for this company, for this type of industry, for this type of employee, you have an X percent likelihood to appeal to your office in this part of town, in this building type to get them back to the office. Right. I mean, I can, can you, you slice the nums in that way or what it, is that even possible? Yeah, I think it, the <laughs> the companies could uh, ultimately, um, and it's it's really interesting too the way you framed it, Alex. Because if you think about it, there are five different variables at play here. There are individual employees, function groups, companies, markets, and industries. All of them operate differently, and oh, so only five then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I kept it simple. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Not six, though. Definitely not six. Maybe we could do four-minute ads. <laughs> it's like, honestly, um, I've literally had well over 100 different dialogues with 100 different companies. I've heard 100 different answers because no one's really solved it yet, if you think about it. And those that think they've solved it, you know, we get another wrench thrown into the equation here with the Delta variant being the latest iteration of that wrench. And... You know, everyone's navigating it differently. Who's inducing or mandating their employers to, or their employees to get vaccinated as one example. It's a, it's a kind of a sticky situation. And unfortunately um, there's some sensitivities as it relates to even that notion. So a lot more to come there, but at least we could quantify at the building level uh, who's coming back and when. So you bring up an interesting point there because, you know, there's obviously Delta variant, but of course, there's always going to be something else that that prevents people from coming to the office or whatever. Uh, and it leads me to the question around privacy, right? And so we're trying to, so now we're with COVID and all that, we're starting to hear uh, privacy issues with relationship to vax or no vax, COVID or no COVID and what have you. So, but privacy is a bigger issue at play with big data, right? It's not, you know, Google and everyone is in, you know, they're in the press about privacy issues, Facebook and all that stuff. So what is the privacy relationship and or issues that you're struggling with or potentially um, working against or towards, you know, uh, one or the other uh, in your business that you want to share with us? Sure. Um, there's certainly some scary examples out there, specifically as it relates to some of the data sources, like cell phone data being one of them. It could be twist and turn in a few different directions, something more frightening than others. And part of me wants to like throw my cell phone into the garbage, but um, the degree which it could be anonymized is an opportunity here. And um, what some big data companies are trying to solve for is getting to know you. And you as a person are just like an amalgamation of different sources of data and, and sources of truth. And this has been going on for a long time, I believe. There's a Netflix special called The Social Dilemma or, or something to that effect. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, where it's like incredibly frightening. It's basically, it should be- It was scary as hell. It should be labeled as a horror show if it's not already. Um, so data is kind of out there in the ether. Um, one would note like it's census data, a violation of privacy, for example. 
as one example. And that's that's data that dates back several decades, of course. Uh, and this is top of mind because the new census, of course, is just about to get released. So uh, parts of it candidly are a little bit disconcerting. Parts of it, you know, serve as opportunities here because it's kind of what we're getting towards is like, you know, the real estate data itself is out there. It's, it's in the ether. Everyone kind of knows it already. It's like, we're, what are some of those like intuitive adjacencies that do serve as an opportunity here? Um, as long as it can be anonymized in a way that doesn't violate those privacy concerns. Well, you know, you raise a point that says to me, there's data for good and there's data for bad, right? I think there's one aspect of data where, okay, well, maybe it serves you a more targeted ad for, for, for cornflakes or for sneakers, which I don't necessarily think is a good thing. Um, and there's a data for good and arguably the census would be that because then it illustrates, you know, how many, how much money a state or a city gets for social services and programs, these kinds of things, based on how many people live in the city or state. I would assume that there are some benefits and potentially maybe even a fine line between the two when it gets down to the real estate and, and built environment level, where on one aspect, you have data that's helping make decisions about transportation and highways and, and mobility systems. Uh, at the same time, how many, how big should the grid be so that people get lights? I get that, right? But there was a project in, uh, in Toronto with Sidewalk Labs uh, where Google, I think, probably had the best intent <laughs> to go out and create this city that was connected. But I don't think people ultimately saw it that way. And hence, they went out, you know, they, they shut the project down. Where, where do you see um, where, where that fine line and that, that debate, that tipping point between good data versus bad, particularly as it relates to real estate? The more micro it gets, I think the more bad in air quotes it becomes. At the end of the day, if like you're tracking Craig Leibowitz and where he's going and how he's going to the office and it's not anonymized, that's where you draw an issue from a privacy concern. And that's honestly a case study in and of itself, Alex, where like I think the intent, of course, was, you know, just have traffic lights be operated in terms of whether people, whether there's actual traffic or not which makes it a much more efficient process to drive through the city is one example. If people aren't on the streets, should the lights be lit, for example? Well, that's your question. You know, um, as we look to the future of data, uh, and as you say, it's getting more granular and more accessible, and we're finding ways to, to create more data about what people are doing and how they're thinking and what they, what they want, et cetera. <clears throat> a lot of people have problems with statistics because a lot of times people can basically, you can find whatever statistic you want to prove your point. They go in with a point and they come out with the statistics. As we look in the future and as data becomes more available and more valuable, do you see people trying to use the data, maybe as in bad data, to prove a point versus being open-minded to what you're doing and seeing how that could change the industry for the better going forward? So funny you mentioned that. Uh, I could show a, a chart with rents going up over time, and it would be interpreted. I could I could change the title to say this market is overheated, or there's unabated rent growth. Same chart, two completely different messages, and that's the way this industry has traditionally operated, where we would steer data in service of our goals. Our goals may not have been in the same interests of those of our clients, unfortunately. We're getting to a place where the latter is going to be true, where the data itself will be self-evident. So 
you locate your building or your office in Grand Central, what is your access to talent, period? How many people, whether it's your employees, current or future, can you attract in a 60 minute commute? That is self-evident, uh, for example. How does that measure up to other prospective locations, whether it's the Flatiron District or the Upper East Side, as other examples? I think the industry that's gone it right first is healthcare. Healthcare is some of the best data we've come across as an industry because they could measure, for example, claims, medical claims data in a very granular level. Um, that's an opportunity to open up, for example, new ambulatory centers in markets that are underserved. And that's for the greater good. Right, obviously. And, uh, um, and so based on the current work that you're doing and your firm is doing now, are there any trends or anything new that, that you could pass on to our listeners in terms of what you see as potential opportunities in real estate? I, wouldn't, I would emphasize the customizability of a real estate solution here. Um, no two clients think exactly alike. Uh, I've, I've, been, I've been fortunate enough to be talking to a number of hedge funds, private equity shops and banks just this week. And they each have different theses about where to invest in the market. And the opportunity here is to say, hey, bank versus hey, hedge fund, here's where you can or should place your capital. It could either affirm or deny a thesis. The thesis could be very different depending on the organization, how they're structured, where they want to place capital, et cetera. That's exactly where we should have been a long time ago as an industry, where we haven't been for various reasons. And now we're delivering a, a solution as that point of truth or that source of truth, I should say, to deliver exactly that. And that's just one small microcosm of a market. The closer we get to the demand side of the equation in a way that occupiers think, again, kind of the humanistic terms here, for example, if you're a retailer, you want to be in a location that has a lot of foot traffic. If you're a restaurant, you prefer to have a location uh, that is ready-made and retrofit to accommodate the exhaust requirements of uh, a food and beverage space as another option. So I would, I would argue that, you know, that a lot of that is changing, right? I think that to your point, there's some of the this legacy demand uh, on retail and foot traffic. At the same time, retail in and of itself, and you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, has changed over, over the years, right? E-commerce, um, the distribution center for those e-commerce are now replacing uh, retail uh, operations that are on Main Street, as opposed to uh, out in the middle of nowhere where there's a huge warehouse that services large retail. So a lot of things are getting smaller, a lot of things are getting localized, and I think has an impact on, on, on real estate. I know that you can't um, state recommendations, uh, so I won't ask you uh, state recommendations. However, I'll ask you, what, you know, what are the things that you'd possibly, you know, maybe it's the signals that you're seeing um, universally from a trend standpoint that you would say, hey, look, you know, I would pay closer attention to this sector versus that based on what you're seeing directional trends. Obviously, we don't want to get you too much detail, but love to get your point of view on where you think that we should be looking. Sure. So I'll toss out a few ideas, just based on what the data is telling us. Um, one is healthcare. 
if, if anything, if people are getting, people get older, that's not groundbreaking news, but the demographic profile of the United States is aging, which means there's just embedded tailwinds as it relates to services to accommodate increasingly elderly generation. So think of the, not just the hospital uses, but also um, the ancillary industries, such as, you know, uh, uh, senior care or senior living facilities is one example. I think that's certainly one that makes sense. We don't have to debate e-commerce. Uh, everyone seems to know that's everywhere. That's a snooze fest. Everyone knows uh, about that already, or have, or most of your listeners probably are, are aware of that already. Um, there are certainly some opportunities arising as it relates to development by and large. So what's the kind of like, well, as Sam Zell once said a while ago, the time to buy is when there's blood in the streets. There is blood in the streets in a lot of sectors, whether it's geographically or in terms of property type. So central business district office, there's blood in the streets at this stage. If we get to a place in a few years where people will return to have returned to work in mass, understanding that the economy for office using talent hasn't changed all that meaningfully, even after the pandemic, you have a, you have a pretty interesting and attractive risk return opportunity at your, at your fingertips. That's a very positive outlook for New York City, that's for sure. <laughs> Midtown anyway. Does blood and garbage count? Because I mean... <laughs> Uh, so uh, as we wrap up, and we get close to wrapping up here, Craig, um, this has been so insightful. Um, I, I just keep falling back to the uh, to the uh, to the Moneyball um, example, but it seems like you've uncovered new ways to be perhaps better at predicting um, positive outcomes in real estate investing, right? And I, I think like any like anything else, when we discover something new. It's you never pull that never goes away. That's now added to the process. So uh, hopefully your 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 intuition into this and the work you and your team are doing is gonna is another tool to allow people who I live in real estate, work in real estate, invest in real estate to make better decisions, improve their returns, and improve their lives. So we thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think it's really a uh, uh, fascinating inflection point as an industry. And you, you, you framed it exactly right. Someone's going to solve for it. And I have conviction that that someone is us, given the talent we have on our team. And that's the human element here too, as well. It's talent, it's people, it's intuition, and it's having visionaries who understand exactly what our clients' needs are and how we're going to get there. So I want to thank you, Craig uh, and uh, Everson Young, for uh, having you on the show, educating our listeners, giving us a, a point of view about how data is being used and the future in which data will be used to help us make better decisions. So thank you for your time, Craig. Looking forward to having you on the show again in the future. Thank you very much, Craig. Pleasure's all mine. Thank you. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. 
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.